who wouldn't want our children to know those great truths, right? Singing them from these earliest years of their lives is a wonderful way to uh, memorize and keep God's word in our hearts, especially as we face a variety of issues and temptations and trials in our lives. These are great truths, a great hymn based on Psalm 90, the only hymn I, or only psalm, I believe, written by Moses. This morning, we are turning our attention to beginning the Advent series, as we've done in years past. Uh, many years, uh, Pastor Fisher and I have done a series during this time of year that focuses our attention, of course, upon what everybody is thinking about anyway, that is the coming of our Savior. The Incarnation, or as one of the great hymns of our season says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to do that once again. We're beginning this year. So we'll be suspending uh, the book of Jude until the new year, and we'll focus these five weeks on what we remember during this time of year. To do that this morning, I want to look at a passage from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, where we find a wonderful statement of our faith that will serve as an introduction to our entire series. And we trust as we enter into this time that it will be a great blessing to you, encourage uh, the focus of your own hearts and minds on God's love for us demonstrated in sending of his only son coming in the likeness of human flesh to save us from our sins. So if you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and stand as we read this portion of God's word, it's a very brief reading from verses 14 through 16, but a very profound and important section of this letter. Beginning in verse 14, 1 Timothy 3, this is God's word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. All flesh indeed is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that in these words you have given to us a testimony of the early church, its confession of who Christ is. And it is our confession as well as we begin this time and these studies that you would guide and direct us. And even this morning through the preaching and hearing of your word, you would bless it to our growth in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's not an accident, of course, that we're moving in this direction at this point. Uh, as Pastor Fisher and I talked, I suggested that we do 
a series based on this particular statement, but particularly the, the one statement at the beginning of the hymn or poem, as most believe this is, in verse 16, where it begins, he was manifested in the flesh. And I really wanted to do this because I think as we read through and study these sermons, or as we go through these sermons in the coming weeks, I think you will understand, and our prayer is that we would understand together, how important this statement of our faith is, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, was manifested, was revealed in human flesh. Now that for us, as we sit here this morning, may sound rather uh, normal. We say it all of the time, we rejoice in it all of the time, but as Paul writes, especially in his letters, especially Paul, but also John, he speaks about this truth, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. It becomes so central, the idea to everything that we think about in the Christian life. And that's our hope that you and I together, we together would understand these things more clearly. But this morning, I want to begin by looking at this very statement where that particular phrase is found. It's interesting that in studying Jude, as we did last week, we studied what the faith is, and we said that there is or content to this, that the faith that Jude speaks of, that is, that we are called to contend for, to wrestle for, if you will, to use all our energies in defending, that that faith has a substance and content. It's a faith or a truth that was delivered by God, God being the author. It's a faith and truth that, again, has content, has doctrine as a part of it, and it's a faith and truth that really matters. It matters what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. It matters what we believe uh, with regard to the doctrines that we hold. And so this verse, verse 16, this hymn again or poem as it's ordered here in most of our Bibles, sort of set apart in that poetic way, may have been an early church hymn, gives us a wonderful example of the content or the substance of the faith that we are to be contending for, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. These are truths that we confess and truths that are worth again contending for. Now, part of Paul's purpose in writing these two letters is very much like we find in the book of Jude. There are false teachers among the church there at Ephesus, teachers who have come in that are teaching error, and Timothy, by Paul, is being warned in these chapters. You may remember when Pastor Fisher began uh, his study in 1 Timothy, the pastoral epistles. He'll pick that up again in the new year. But in chapter 1, we read these words, And I urged you, when I was going into Macedonia, that you remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So you see part of the issue that Paul's dealing with, with Timothy, 
is these false teachers. And in fact, if you look more deeply, and it's not our purpose this morning to look exhaustively at this, but if you look throughout 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you'll find that one of the issues that they were dealing with in uh, Ephesus at the time was that there were those who were teaching that Jesus had not come in the flesh. Similar to John as he writes his general letters, 1 John, uh, at the end, towards the end of the Bible, dealing with the same issue. It was a very troubling error being taught in the churches. And Paul is telling Timothy, you need to stand fast, contend for, resist, be opposed to these teachers who are undermining the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And one of the ways he does that is by this great confession. Now, again, he may be quoting a well-known early church hymn, a poem. We don't really know, but, but most believe it is. And it is a statement of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. So I want to look at these verses, especially the poem or the hymn itself. But before we do, there are two things to note, and it's going to be helpful to note these before we jump in. And that is that scholars, no surprise, are divided as to how we ought to look at this particular uh, section. You see there are six lines in the English translation here. There are six lines. In the ESV, it seems to be set apart three and three, and that's one of the ways you can approach this. Uh, some argue that it should be approached chronologically, beginning with the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh. That, that's what he's talking about. Jesus, or he, was manifested in the flesh. So that's the beginning of the, what we call the good news of the gospel, that God sent his one and only son. And then it proceeds, they argue, until he is taken up into glory. Now, the only problem that most point out with regard to that chronological look at these verses is that what do you do with proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world? That seems to make taken up into glory a reference to his coming again, which it really can't be because this idea of being taken up is probably uh, arguing or uh, ref referring to his ascension into heaven. So the chronological view has some difficulties with it. That really leaves two other very common views. The second is, as the ESV here has it, that there are two stanzas of three lines each. And in these stanzas, it organizes it with respect to a description first of Christ's finished work. In the first line, his incarnation, then his resurrection, vindicated by the Spirit, and then his ascension seen by angels, the argument goes. And then in the second stanza, you have the response to that work, the outcoming uh, or the outflow of that work, preaching, faith, and then glory to Christ. Now, that's a legitimate way to look at it, but that's not the way we're going to look at it this morning. I have been persuaded, at least from my vantage point, that this third way is really the best, and that is to see these as three Couplets, that is, three couplets of two verses each. Three pairs of verses, each of which are meant to contrast the earthly and heavenly perspective. On earth, he was manifested in the flesh. In heaven, he was vindicated by the Spirit. In heaven, he was seen by angels. On earth, he was proclaimed among the nations. On earth, he was believed on. 
In heaven, he was taken up into glory. Now, this, I'm persuaded, is the best way and the way that we'll look at this morning. Three couplets, two lines each. The second thing I want to note before we jump into the study is that the reason I chose this as the introduction for our series in Advent is because of this first statement. Again, he was manifested in the flesh. And our goal in these sermons is to remind us of how that idea of Jesus coming in the flesh is so central to our faith and why it was absolutely necessary if we were ever to know salvation. And and by that, I mean more than he had to be made like us in order to suffer and die for our sins. There's so much more than that to be understood by this statement manifested in the flesh. And our hope, again, is to take us through that in our studies. Well, let's look at these verses then and learn this morning what we need to learn as we begin to understand this great early church hymn and confession of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. You'll notice the immediate context, verses 14 and 15, are important to set the stage. Paul is writing, I hope to come to you, verse 14, soon, but if I am delayed, I'm going to write these things to you now that you may know how you ought or how one ought to behave in the household of God. I've promised Pastor Fisher I'm not going to steal his thunder about these verses because they are rich and incredibly important. But you'll notice he's, he's telling them something here about that what he's about to say in the verses that we're highlighting this morning is the answer to how they are to behave in the household of God, how they are to live a godly life. That's the phrase in verse 16, the mystery of godliness. How is it that we are to live a godly life? How do we behave in this household of God? Now, that phrase is rich in and of itself. Household of God in the Old Testament, always without exception, is a reference to the temple of the living God, where God makes his abode among his people. And and we know that Jesus has become for us our temple in whom we are united and enter into that union with Christ. And we also know that God is making believers brick by brick into a temple of the living God into which his spirit dwells. So this is a rich, rich picture of temple, the idea of temple, God taking up his presence among his people, and God saying to us, much like the priests were required in everything that they did to be holy before the Lord as they served him, so Paul is now using all of that imagery to say, this is how we are to be holy in the household of the living God. And ultimately, to point ahead, The answer is, no surprise, Sunday School 101, Jesus. That's the answer because that's what verse 16 is all about. It's about Jesus and Jesus and who he is and who we are in him is how we are then to become holy and righteous in the household of God. Notice as well, and I'll leave the rest of that for Pastor Fisher to unpack as he continues his study in the books of the pastoral epistles. 
But notice this other phrase, which is very important. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now that alone is profound. And again, I won't go into all of it. This idea that the church is the household of God, the Old Testament temple, representative of the people of God. This picture is a picture of continuity between the people of the Old Testament and the people of the New Testament. The church is the Israel of God, as Romans tells us and teaches us. And so you have this unity that Paul is speaking of here, which is very rich indeed. But that's what he's talking about. The church of the living God is the temple of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Both of these words refer to the language of foundation, foundational things. And so when we think of pillar and buttress, we think of the pillars of the temple, which held up the roof of the temple, if you will. That, that raised it up. And that, that picture here is really a picture of us raising up through our lives and through our testimony the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the world to see. That's what the church does. It, it holds up the truth of God for all to see. Not by its own strength, but by the power of God working in and through it. But the church is, is foundational in this idea of holding up and exalting the truth of God, the truth of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So you see this picture that Paul's writing. He's creating a picture that I'm sure Pastor Fisher will flesh out more as he studies these verses. But then we come to verse 16, where it begins in this way. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now, mystery of godliness, that's important. Now, godliness is, is our godly living. How do we live in a godly way before God? In the temple of the Most High God? As the priests were required, so are we required to be godly. How does that happen? The answer is Jesus. Through Jesus, union with him. But, but this idea of mystery, remember in the Bible, New Testament especially, the Bible speaks of mystery as that which once was clouded or hidden or not clearly seen in the Old Testament, now fully revealed in the person of Christ. That's why the content of this hymn is so important. It focuses our minds upon the revelation of God in Christ, so central to everything that we believe, who Jesus is, who God made him to be for us. And so this idea of the mystery or the revelation now of godliness seen in sort of a blurred form in the Old Testament, but now fully revealed in the new. It is great indeed. Now, not all commentators agree with this. I, I do, and I think it's, it's right as we think of where Timothy is. Do you remember where Timothy is? He's left in Ephesus. He is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul left him there to, to train leaders to resist and stand against false teaching. That's what we just read earlier. So, so Timothy is in Ephesus. And Acts 19 tells us about an experience of the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions in Ephesus. And you remember it, Artemis, the silversmith. The business of Ephesus was in jeopardy because Paul was preaching about Jesus, 
who he says has supremacy over all the false gods, small g. And remember, Demetrius makes this speech and says, listen, our very livelihood is in jeopardy. We make our money by selling these false idols, which is a creation of these silversmiths of Artemis or Diana, the god of the Ephesians. And you remember what they say as they hear the speech. When they heard this, verse 28 of chapter 19, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's the same word in the Greek, magos, which is a word that is a word of comparative. That is, this, what we say is great, is superior in every way of everything else and over everything else. So for the Ephesians, Artemis, Diana, is greater than any gods, including the gods that Paul speaks about or, Paul sp- or the god that Paul speaks about. And Paul writes this. And I don't, think it's, I don't think it's accidental. Great indeed, we confess, the mystery of godliness. What Paul is saying is very clear. Jesus is superior to all others. Jesus is greater than all others. Greater than Artemis, Diana, greater than any gods of the Athenians, of the Ephesians, of any of the gods of his day. Jesus is greater And so this truth is elevated, raised up, held, as it were, on pillars for the world to hear, for the world to see. Then let's look at the hymn very quickly. I'm choosing, again, to look at this as couplets, three couplets. So the first is manifested and vindicated. They come in order. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. With respect to earth or the earthly perspective, he was manifested, revealed in the flesh. Everywhere the New Testament uses this word, it refers to something that had a pre-existence before and was now being made manifest. It was something that was existing before. It was not just existing when it's revealed and manifested. It's hidden It's already existing, but now it is made manifest for all to see. And so 1 John verse 1 or verse or chapter 1 verse 2, the life, Jesus, was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made, same word, manifested to us. Jesus has a pre-existence. This is a statement of his divinity, one of many within the Bible for those who say the Bible never claims that Jesus himself or the Bible elsewhere never claims that Jesus was God. He is God. This is one of those statements. He who pre-existed was with the Father is now made manifest, revealed in the flesh. The preexistent one now seen by all. Thou who wast rich, we sing, beyond all splendor for love's sake becamest poor. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. He is, Paul says, according to Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This one, Paul says, this preexistent one was made manifest, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he was manifested in the flesh. And that will be the subject of our series this Advent, Lord willing. But along with that, you have a view, as it were, from heaven. The view from earth is this preexistent one was made manifest or visible in the flesh. The view from heaven is that this same one was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, there's no objection, no disagreement that what this speaks of is his resurrection, where he himself, with respect to heaven, was vindicated. And here's the idea. Man made his judgment against Christ when they put him on a cross. They judged him to be a liar. They judged him to be a tool or a servant of Satan. You remember those verses in John? They judged him to be a failure, having been cursed of God by hanging on a cross. But God, with respect to heaven, by the Spirit, through the resurrection, vindicated Jesus and proved that the judgment of men was wrong. And that's the point he says here. Though he seems to have been just completely destroyed by mankind and viewed to be a failure, with respect to heaven and God himself, he is vindicated. Romans 1 says this in verses 3 and 4 concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only did Jesus teach, instruct his disciples and all of the crowds with respect to who he was, but when they rejected him, turned away, declared him to be a failure, God in the resurrection by the Spirit vindicated him and proved them wrong. And that vindication is what Paul says is an element of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Secondly, this second couplet is being seen and proclaimed Seen by angels is respect to heaven, I think, is the focus there from a heavenly perspective. This is most likely a statement that refers to the, the testimony that we see in the New Testament throughout his earthly ministry of angels being present and ministering to him. Although, as some writers believe, some will argue that the word messenger, and you know this, I think, already, but the word messenger that we translate angels is also a word that simply means messenger. So it may mean a reference to the apostles who give testimony, who, are seen, uh, who saw Jesus. I'm preferring to see it as angels because I think that is so clear as we read the account of his earthly ministry. Think about it for a moment, right? Angels present at the pronouncement of his birth to Mary and Joseph. Angels present at his birth. The angel choirs in heaven when he was born on this earth. 
angels ministering to him in his temptation. The scriptures tell us angels ministering to him in Gethsemane as he struggled in prayer. Angels present at the empty tomb, angels witnessing him at the ascension. I think it's a picture, a testimony of angels. And that establishes this very truth that Jesus is what Paul says he is, the mystery of godliness. I think we ought to understand those angels and angelic beings, not simply being the angels that ministered to him, that were present and singing and rejoicing in his birth, but also the angelic beings that are part of this invisible world, this demonic world, the powers of the rulers of the air. They too have seen the work of Christ. Think of the demons he cast out. They're angelic beings, right? They're angelic beings who left their first estate, Jude tells us. They are part of the angelic hosts that are present in this world, invisible to us, and yet his work was seen by those angels as well. And remember how they responded, has our time come, they said, too early. And they, they trembled in fear, James tells us, as the devil himself does, because of the work of Christ. And so his work, his coming in the flesh, vindication by the Spirit, was seen by angels. Now, with respect to earth, this couplet says, well, not only was he seen by angels, but he was proclaimed among the nations. This is a reference, of course, no doubt, to the great commission, the call of God upon every believer, that we proclaim the message of salvation to the world. What's in view here is this idea, the nations, the goyim, the unbelievers, the ones who aren't Jewish, who didn't share in the benefits of the old covenant. That's what's in view here. And, and we know this is eschatological. This is a view of the end of what Jesus came to do. The gospel would be not only for Israel. Remember our study in Isaiah, how often we noted that Isaiah kept bringing in the nations. This one was born in Egypt. This one was born here. They're all pagan nations, Assyria, Babylon. Because the nations, in God's perspective, were going to be part of the focus of the coming of Christ. That this would be a proclamation made to the nations all over the earth. And so we sing, don't we? Go tell it on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Because it's good news for the nations. And so that message, that idea, that the mystery of godliness, that once hidden, now revealed, found in the person of Jesus, is a message for the nations. Rich Wilson, our administrator, just showed me the cover, I think, of our upcoming sacred concert. And guess what the theme is? The nations. Joy to the world. To the nations of the earth, the gospel has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. This is a season of proclaiming the great truth of the gospel to all peoples, all who would hear the wondrous message of hope that is in Christ. The final couplet is believed on in the world, taken up into glory. These two going together again, earth first, believed on in the world. 
I think this is something we can skip over very quickly, but we ought not to. Not only was it proclaimed as a message, a call going out to the nations, but it was actually believed. It was actually believed on by the grace of God. William Barclay, great commentator, says this, here is an almost miraculous truth stated with utter simplicity. After Jesus had died, risen again, and ascended to his glory, the number of his followers were 120. All that his followers had to offer was the story of a Galilean carpenter who had been crucified on a hilltop in Palestine as a criminal. And yet, before 70 years had passed, the story had gone out to the ends of the earth, and men and women of every nation believed on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's remarkable. In less than 70 years, the gospel, this faith once for all delivered unto the saints, this testimony of the mystery of godliness had gone out into all the world, and men and women from every nation had come to believe the gospel of Jesus. It began, of course, with his most intimate followers, his disciples, and then continued, as Acts tells us, from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that we end the book of Acts with Paul standing in Rome, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is significant because once you reach Rome, you reach the world. And so the gospel has been going out, believed on in the world this phrase reminds me of the question that Jesus asked the sisters of Lazarus as they stood at the grave of their brother. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That same simple gospel, same simple truth, this faith once for all delivered unto the saints is being proclaimed among the nations. And it is every day being believed. People's lives are changed and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Your testimonies bear that out. As elders, we rejoice and every elder will tell you it's our favorite time. I've told you this before. When we sit with people, interview them for membership, we just sit back and we listen. How did the Lord work in your life to bring you to Jesus? Because it's believed on. People are believing it. Faith, trusting in Jesus, casting their whole lives upon him, and they are not disappointed. And then finally, taken up into glory. This is, I think, everyone agrees, not a reference to his second coming, but a reference to his ascension where he ascended to his father, seated at his right hand, and will come again from that place to judge the living and the dead. What I want you to note, and this is not uh, original with me, but you do note it in this, this hymn or this poem. The story of Jesus begins in heaven and it ends in heaven. It begins in heaven because he is the preexistent one now manifested in the flesh. It ends in heaven with Jesus being taken back up into glory. He will come again from heaven. He will take us to be with him so that where he is, we will be with him as well. Brothers and sisters, this is the faith. The faith once for all delivered unto the saints. 
And here's the point I want to end with, and I think it relates to the whole picture here, because again, I want to emphasize in verse 16, the mystery of godliness. How do we live as godly people in his temple? How do we live as godly people in his temple? The answer is through Jesus and in Jesus. Because the truth of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, is a truth that transforms. Many of you know the name Dr. D. James Kennedy, now with the Lord for many years. I've always remembered the name of his ministry, Truths That Transform. Simple but profound And our hope as we talk about these things through our series in Advent will help us to see that this truth manifested in the flesh is a truth that transforms lives. It will not leave us where we are or were. It transforms our lives. Christ is, Paul says here, the definition of what it means to be godly and how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God This is all about piety and godliness, not a mere profession and confession of the truth. What we believe, what we believe directly relates to how we live. If we believe the wrong things, which is why false teaching is so detrimental and so damaging to the church, if we believe the wrong things, as we're seeing in Jude, It will lead to ungodly living. But if we believe the right things, the truth once for all, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, it transforms us. It is the mystery hidden, now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that, I trust, in the coming weeks. One of the things I want us to see, and and that really is the main point of application in this context, beyond what we've already noted as we study the verses, but the, the main thing as we transition finally to this series in the weeks to come, the main thing I want us to see as we close this introduction to our Advent series is that we will be speaking of uh, this truth of God that is being held up and held out to the world One of the things we raise up as pillars raise a roof and hold out to the world is this simple truth. He, Jesus, the preexistent one, was manifested, revealed in the flesh. This pillar is central to our faith, central to the message of Christmas and of the incarnation, central to our defense against the opposition of false teachers that both Jude and Paul and Timothy are battling against. We're going in these weeks to set forth this truth of God as he has delivered it to us in his word. And that is what all of us ought to be doing this Christmas season, is holding forth this simple truth that Jesus, the eternal son of the father, was revealed and manifested in the flesh. And that truth matters. It's absolutely necessary that we believe it. Apart from it, there is no transformation of our lives. Our hymn that we're going to end with, once in Royal David City, he came down to earth from heaven who is God and Lord of all. 
and his shelter was a stable and his cradle was a stall with the poor and the mean and the lowly lived on earth our savior holy that's the truth we're going to look at that's the truth we trust god will use to continue to conform us to his image let us pray Father, as we consider these wonderful testimonies sung, we believe perhaps by the early church as a confession of their faith, may we wrestle through each one in our own minds and hearts and understand all that is here for us, all that is in Jesus, and that by these truths, indeed, our lives would be transformed, more and more conformed, to the image of Jesus, your Son, our Savior and our Lord, who indeed in the fullness of time was manifested in the flesh. We thank you for this great truth and pray your blessing upon these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.